Welcome back to the Kogo Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's great to have you here. Today, I'm going to be in conversation with Dr. Ryan Doherty. I met Ryan at the AP reading in Salt Lake City this past June. It was his first year at the reading. We sat at a table together, got to know each other. I like the guy. He's a solid cat. He is a professor of politics at Butler University in beautiful Indianapolis, Indiana. Ryan and I talk a bit about his path towards his PhD and his path to Butler University. And he talks about his comparative government class. You know, he talks about how he balances lectures and discussions and presentations. Uh, He explains this simulation that he does that I think is pretty cool. I would like to do that at a university class. I would also like to read a lot of what's on his syllabus. His students read quite a bit in addition to reading a textbook and How Democracies Die. He has a whole litany of journal articles and newspaper articles. The kids who take his comparative government class are getting a world-class education, which is part of the reason I wanted to have Ryan on the podcast. So this conversation is part of a short series I'm doing on the Kogo Pod with university professors, just to give us a sense of what happens in comparative government and politics courses at different universities around the country. If you enjoy these conversations, if you find them edifying, as always, I'd like to remind you, you're cordially invited to head over to buymeacoffee.com slash kogopod. That's buymeacoffee.com slash kogopod. The link is in the show notes. Uh, this podcast is a 100% listener-supported podcast. So if you like what you hear and you have the means to give a few, if you like to support independent creators, please do click on that link in the show notes and support me at Buy Me A Coffee. No stress no pressure. I'm going to keep doing this thing either way, but it's nice to have a little bit of support. All right, here it is, my conversation with Ryan Doherty. Dr. Ryan Doherty, welcome to the Kogo Pod. It is a pleasure to have you here. It was great to meet you at the AP reading in Salt Lake City, and I'm really grateful that we can continue that conversation here and now. There are so many ways this conversation could start, but perhaps we can start here. When did you develop an interest in politics? started I think young <laughs> whether it was getting into geopolitics I, I uh, remember very vividly the 2000 election and how contested that was and then shortly thereafter uh, the 9-11 attacks bringing the world to the United States in a way that hadn't been felt in decades uh, and ending the end of history era if we want to say that and then after that just continuing to pay attention and that just continued uh, through high school uh, and into college uh, like in high school being involved with international relations club s things and then model un and then in college being i guess king of the nerds by leading my model un club and all that and then just <laughs> continuing uh to be engaged uh in like international uh, affairs things just trying to continually learn all right 
I have to say, sometimes I struggle trying to decide what to name these episodes, but you just did it for me, Dr. Ryan Doherty, King of the Nerds. Uh. Uh, thank you for helping out. <laughs> so that's where it all began. And maybe with that in mind, I could get you to kind of speed walk me along your path. You know, did you did you know that you should study politics when you went to study at university? What did you study at university? And then like walk us through your PhD program, your dissertation. Give us the path. Yeah. Um, I, as I said, I was involved in international affairs things in high school, like Model UN and all, whatnot. So I knew I wanted to go and study something like that. Uh, I attended a, a small liberal arts university, Anderson University in Anderson, Indiana, and they had political science. So it's like, okay, this is the route I'm going to take. But along the way, I picked up other things I was interested in, different things that complement any study of politics. So actually, my final major was a political science economic major, which essentially had economics built into the major. And then I got as close as you can get to having a history major. So I had like out of 35 hours, 32 credit hours of history. So I did that as well. <laughs> uh huh. I didn't necessarily know which way I would break. I guess vaguely I knew I always wanted to go for a PhD, but in my brain it would always lead to like diplomacy or something like that. But instead it actually led to uh, me being interested in doing research and wanting to teach yeah. <laughs> at the university level because I saw what my professors did. I thought it was really cool, like whether it was the doing things, like I said, I was involved in Model UN. I also did short-term trips. I studied abroad. One of those trips in undergrad, I went to Central America, Guatemala uh, specifically, and that kind of sparked an interest in, this is really interesting what's going on here in the in this region that's not all that far from the United States. And as I started to study it further, it's like, oh, really not far from the United States at all, not far from the U.S.'s eye by any means. And so that put me on a path of, this is what I want to focus on. I want to go get a master's and maybe a PhD in this. And then I applied to grad school, got into uh, the University of Kansas, and was fortunately was fully funded with that. I say that just because I never go to grad school without being funded. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. That's a digression. Uh, and then in grad school, I still focused on Central America. But with grad school, it presented different challenges for me just because you go from being like in the classroom where you're, yeah, barely, you know, probably an intelligent person, I'm willing to speak up, articulate myself to everybody is like that. Everybody is a do-gooder. Everybody is yeah. really up for the challenge. And so for me, that mentally took me some time to adjust and also kind of just figuring out, is this for sure what I want to do? And turns out, yes, it is what I wanted to do. But along the way, I had to make adjustments on what my final research topic would be. And I um, ended up focusing on just uh, ethnic representation in Latin America, but also just broadly in that by just trying to use data that was available to me. And by doing that, though, that enabled me to kind of look a little bit broadly as a political scientist. And that kind of put me on the path of like, I teach across the political science discipline now and put me in my current position, which is at uh, Butler University in Indianapolis, where I teach comparative politics, but I teach all across political science. So all right. Well, I am curious to hear about your entire teaching load, but per the mission of this here podcast, let's let's dive right in then to your comparative government class. There's so much we can talk about. You were kind enough to send me a copy of your syllabus and and I, I perused it. I spent some time with it. I would love to take your class. Let's start from the beginning. 
like other than, you know, dealing with the nuts and bolts and saying hello, how does your comparative government class begin at Butler University in beautiful Indiana? That's the nicest I've ever heard. And no, uh, Butler's actually a very lovely campus. <laughs> it, it, entirely facetious. I've been, I've, I've, I spent a week in Indiana one afternoon. That's all you need. Um, as we say. <laughs> so depending upon what thing I need to hit, sometimes I just have political science students. So, Hey, I know what I need to hit. Sometimes I'm teaching for a broader audience, but I really, I like to start pretty much every semester with trying to ask them, what do we gain by looking at other countries? Sometimes I will then give them a, um, and this is all in the first week of like, give them a case and like, all right, start trying to compare this case and try to think of a way to systematically begin to tell me the things that are valuable from this case. What can it tell us about democracy? What can it tell us about human rights? What can it tell us about all these things to help us understand politics and try to think it through of like, yeah, there are practical information about, you know, maybe you're interested in diplomacy and because I get a range of students that are maybe wanting to go that path and how that might apply to you that way. Sometimes it might be you are wanting to go into secondary ed. So how does it apply that way? But then also just more of the, this is the, and me as the political scientist, like I'm just generally interested and that's why I went into this. I was trying to understand, it's like, what makes the politics work in different countries? How do we actually compare things? How do we methodologically try to be truly comprehensive in our comparisons. And so that really begins the uh, semester. It's like spending time doing that. So you begin the semester by asking the big questions and giving them a chance to think about a broad array of big questions going from why are we here to how could this impact what you might choose mm -hmm. to do for a living to what are the methods that we could possibly adopt in order to make sense out of this whirlwind of content. Yeah. Right. And then often I give them a couple of cases and say, go wild and tell me how do we go about trying to compare these cases and what information, what is the pertinent information we denote to understand the politics. Cool. Now let's pause you there to give a sense of the cases that you choose. Now, again, my quick read of your syllabus tells me that you do, in fact, as fate would have it, spend time with each of the six cases that we study in the AP Comparative Government and Politics class. You have the UK, Russia, China, mm -hmm. Nigeria, Iran, and Mexico. But sir, you do not stop there. No, we don't. Uh <laughs> you go further, right? Mm -hmm. You look at the US, you look at Brazil, mm -hmm. Germany, India, Japan, you even look at France and Turkey. So we're talking about a baker's dozen here. Yeah. 13 countries. Let me ask you a question about that. Um, depth versus breadth. I feel like I'm teaching the class in a year. Yeah, I see my students like four times as much as you see yours. Mm -hmm. I feel like six countries is stretching it. You go for 13. Can you talk me through kind of the decision-making process to bring so many countries into the fold? Yeah. Um, so the United States, I always use as a starting out point. They, the United States is still the baseline. That's the case that students know. And it's from there to me, I find it easier for them to begin making, you know, begin looking at other systems, other 
ways of organizing politics that makes sense to them. That makes sense to me. Um, yeah, it's like that's just like know know your backyard first before going elsewhere. Yeah, you still got to account for six more. <laughs> it's heavy, I know, heavy load, but yeah, like we have the Westminster model. That's one reason the UK is there. Um, but then you throw in France, for example, and the reason you include France is it's actually the semi-presidential system and actually in place. Yes, I know Russia technically is, but it's not. Right, it's not. Um, <laughs> it's an authoritarian regime, and you got to throw in the mixed systems and uh, like how do you try and have the best of both worlds? That's why we have Germany there. And then I think of some of the developing nations. So you're Brazil, Mexico, Nigeria, and India, looking at what's going on in the non-Western world, non-Western Europe, developed nations, looking at the global south. And it is a lot to throw in there. But more than anything, I guess in my head, I'm like, I'm, my job is to try and give them a wide a sampling as possible. And so it's kind of a just... I want to say it's an aesthetic thing purely but it is just kind of like an interest thing i like looking at as many cases as possible trying to look at how do the different countries go about trying to answer that question of who holds power how should we organize how power should be distributed okay it's fair i mean you have the freedom to choose and you've made a lot of choices and the advantage of course is that your students certainly leave your class much more worldly than they did coming into it. Now, to support you in this gargantuan task of getting through 13 countries, it seems like you can rely on uh, this textbook that you use. It's the Introducing Comparative Politics book by Orvis and Drogas, which happens to be the college text that Karen Waples's book is based off of. So mm -hmm. listeners to this podcast might know that there's this book called Stories of the World. And it's actually, at the time of this recording, the only comparative government and politics book that's written for, specifically for the AP Comparative Government and Politics class. And the author, Karen Waples, really modeled her book after, like directly modeled her book after the Orvis and Drogas book. Your students read that and, and they read most of it. It seems like they're reading about 50 pages of text, dense text per week. What else are they reading? I, I try to supplement each chapter or each, if I think the concept is like fairly important or if it's like, here's another way to kind of look at it with an additional reading. And sometimes that is just an excerpt that I uh, have, whether like, for example, I'm looking at my, uh, the week I go through democracy and I complement that with a uh, reading from Polyarchy by Robert Dahl, because that is, for me, an important concept to really spend some time on. I know it's an ideology or concept of like, what actually is democracy? Yeah. Um, and so that's why I, with that, I have like that Polyarchy, because that does a good job of trying to think about actually what are the baseline things of what is a democracy or not, and having them begin to wrestle with that of like, thinking what things what elements go into a democracy make it democracy versus what are the things that are just maybe i don't want to say superfluous but something that is yes it's part of a democracy but it's not necessarily fundamental to democracy and then i i realize this is a lot of reading but of how democracies die has been the text i've been reading using of late yeah it's great 
Yeah, it, it's a fantastic book. It takes a lot of uh, political science research and makes it for a broader audience. Yeah, that book has definitely had an impact on my teaching. Dan Zyblatt, in fact, was in Berlin for a year, and he and I uh, became reasonably well acquainted um, hung out a few times. He came in and spoke to my class, and I've been following his work pretty closely ever since. Which, to wit, I might add, in two or three months, he and Steve Levitsky, are, who happens to be his co-author on How Democracies Die, they are dropping not one, but two books. And the second one, or the first one, I don't know what order they're doing it in, is called Saving Democracy. So that could be potentially an interesting companion piece for how democracies die, right? Yeah. Okay. So, Ryan, every week your students read about 50 pages of Orvis and Drogas. They read one or two supplemental articles. Sometimes it's a journal. Sometimes it's from like the Washington Post or the New York Times. You seem to recommend that they register for the New York Times, which your school supplements them with that. You know, you even say in your syllabus that current events will play a major role in the class and that they have to just get used to reading the news every day, which is laudable. Love that you do that. So they have these readings. Real quick, do you hold them responsible for these readings and anything other than quizzes and tests? Do they have to turn in outlines or are there guided reading questions? Or do you just say, read this text section? I can't tell if you're calling me out there or not. Um. <laughs> no, I'm just asking. No, no, it's an honest question. It's, I mean, it's really, it's, it's a real problem. So what's your answer? I'll tell you, it depends on the semester and depends on the time of the semester. When, um, because early on, I do try to, um, with uh, these classes, I do try to throw in more reading quizzes. Okay. Where I'll tell them like, hey, this week we're going to have a quiz here, you know, at the beginning. Here are some of the things I'm thinking about going into it and try to stick to it. I admit, I kind of, you know, taper off as a semester. You just get busy. That's fine. You help them to develop the habit. And then, you know, you see, you know, how the class benefits from their doing the work. It's okay. I'm not trying to, I just wanted to know if you do have them take notes or if there are quizzes or not. And you, you answered the question. We're cool. So now that we've talked a bit about what they read, I want to talk about what your class looks like. Like, how do you balance lectures, discussions, presentation? Can you give me a sense of proportionality? Like, what percent of your class is lecture versus what percent is discussion versus presentations? Yeah, um, I still would say about half class is lecture, even though I don't love that percentage. It's just a balance of trying to build them up enough to be able to do things. And first part of semester is much more heavy lecture based. But each class, though, I still have a discussion point where either it's maybe I give them a set of questions at the beginning of class. Here's what we're thinking about. And then after we walk through maybe a couple of cases or some of the key concepts that I want to focus on that day, we then break it out into discussion. Sometimes I may give them here are some different cases. And how would you um, or maybe I might give them like open class, for example, with a, a picture or a quote to get them, you know, how does this relate to some case for the day? And so that's another way to try and get that discussion piece, because that is a big part of, I would say, my pedagogy is trying to make sure that we are having engagements, not just me lecturing at you and you all being passive consumers of information. Uh, and then I also try to um, 
do like with the current events, like generally I have a current event, each student's responsible for a current event presentation at some point in the semester. And that's just five to 10 minutes of, hey, here's a current event I found. Here's how it connects to something we've been to a concept we've been discussing in class or theory or to one of the cases we've been discussing. And so, yeah, I try to have a good balance of things. And then something else I imagine I think you, we mentioned already when to talk about is like a simulation where we will, and that's some, a bigger assignment we do over the course of the semester. And so that starts to come and play a bigger role in class toward in the second half of the semester. Okay. Since you brought it up, let's talk about it now. <laughs> you have a simulation assignment that you and your class work on over the course of the semester. And as I understand it, you're trying to piece together a new constitution for a country that's going from an autocratic to a democratic regime. Mm -hmm. This is a group simulation of sorts. Tell me a bit about it. Yeah, the story is it's transitioning, as you mentioned already. Uh, and there's a, an attempt now to try and build a working constitution for this new democracy. So demo this process of democratization. Generally, the way I go about it is I have uh, students break off into groups and I tell them it's up to them to decide uh, you get to write a new constitution for your group and imagine yourself you are a political party or a group within society. And I give them all the demographics of how society is broken down and all that of representing a specific group within this society and trying to say, here's what our ideal constitution would look like. And they work on that over the course of the semester because we ask them about the institution, both electoral institutions, legislative, executive, uh, role of government and the economy, uh, what are the rights that need to be protected versus not protect all the, and try to be as comprehensive as you can be in a 100 level class. Yeah. And then at the end of the semester, as I, um, what we do is we meet and they literally have two full days to work on this constitution and it takes and sometimes they do it as a class usually they break off into working groups work with the different parties and they bring it back together present to the group and try to justify why this is what this group presented for the constitution sometimes i assign the parties ahead of time sometimes i'll throw in special powers for one group or like i'll sometimes whether that's like you used to be part of the dictator, so you have like special police force power, or sometimes they'll I'll have like a communist party that was like led the rebellion or something like that. Just try to keep it interesting and also keep them on their toes to see how they can work within, you know, the different measures of it. So for students, they tend to really like it just because instead of hearing about this abstract abstract uh, principles in the text and, you know, complemented with real cases, they also like being able to like, be able to try and apply it as best as possible. Cool. It sounds like a really lively environment. Uh, I imagine that you're totally spot on, that your students probably love it. When we get off microphone here, I might ask you to share with me what it is that you do. Um, I'd love all the detail I could get. It sounds like something I might be able to incorporate into my work in this class. So you have the simulation, you have the concept paper, you have uh, quizzes, which it says here accounts for more or less 10% of their grade. Perhaps it changes you know, one semester to the next. And what's left here in terms of their grade are two exams, each worth 25%. In brief, what do exams look like in your comparative government class? So the exams, um, what they have looked of late has been about 
10 to 15 multiple choice uh, questions. The rest of the exam is then a short answer questions. So, okay. So give me an example of a couple of short answer questions. One that I always enjoy asking is what are the different theoretical approaches that explain how the state developed? Why did it emerge in Europe? And then uh, what are the issues emerged in societies where the European model was exported? Cool. Give me another example. I like these. <laughs> um, consider the different uh, electoral system in democracy. So pros and cons of single member, pros and cons of proportional. How are ways to address those weaknesses to, you know, uh, to still try and get maybe a little bit to still have, say, the uh, single uh, individual member, but also being more proportional and more representative of the population as a whole. Okay, last question. I like things in threes. Compare and contrast presidentialism and parliamentarism. What are the advantages and disadvantages of each system? What are some of the acute problems as identified by Juan Lins? Yeah, and what are the more acute problems that he identifies? Nice. These are good, good, good exam questions. I like them. Uh, 25% each is 50% total. The simulation is 15%. The quizzes are 10%. The concept papers are 25 The math adds up. It is indeed 100%. That's how your students are graded. You got a lot of good things. You got a lot of great readings in your syllabus. I, I do love the Zyblatt and Levitsky book. Um, let me ask you, what do you love about your comparative course? Honestly, like I think the part I enjoy most is just being able to talk about, I hate to just say politics of other countries, but actually getting to talk about it with young people that are excited, that want to learn, that keep me on my toes and ask me questions. It's like, you know, I hadn't actually considered that before. And I, I could say that about any class, but especially in comparative, I like it just because it's like, this is fun. I get to learn I always learn something new, like part of the reason why, like to answer the question, why do I throw so many cases in there? It's like, honestly, just because I want to learn, I don't have a test I need to teach to. I kind of just like doing it. Uh, it's purely for my, you know, maybe that's me being selfish to my students of like, I just like learning this stuff. And I get different things each time I read the readings and you know, or something hits differently. And so, yeah, I could say that's maybe the thing I love about my course. I think it's probably reasonably common that comparativists, whether they're teaching at the high school or the university level, the breadth of knowledge that we interface with over the course of a given semester is so robust that we are, in fact, constantly learning. And I'd like to think that most of us who go into education, again, regardless of the level at which we teach, do so because we fancy ourselves lifelong learners. And, you know, I've said this before on this podcast, but I am so grateful for what this class has done for me in terms of how it has forced me to continue to learn. I really do have to make substantial changes to my thinking about these countries and thus my lectures and, and, and. So I totally identify with what you're saying, Ryan. I, I think that like the part that we love about the class is that we get to feel like we're interfacing in an earnest 
and intellectual way with the world, which is, to say the very least, an uphill climb. So let's you and I keep climbing here to, to this question that I'm curious about your response to. It's a little left field, but like, because you and I care about comparative government as we do, and because most people go through life without taking a comparative government and politics class, what do you wish more people knew about the discipline of comparative government? It's incredibly hard. It's incredibly difficult at times just because it is you're trying to take on so much, it feels like. But I do find it to be incredibly rewarding to just even digging in a little bit because of the breadth the breadth and the depth of things that you can really study. And so that's what I would just say more than anything is like, it's worth your time, even if you just spend a semester in college doing it or a semester, uh, or I guess a year at the high school, depending upon what, what it is, it's worth it for that. Absolutely. You know, taking a deep dive into the rest of the world. And if I could add to that, to do so in a comparative way. Right. It would be one thing if we were studying different political systems and we took a jaunt around the globe and stopped in six or 13 different countries. But when you do the methodological work of comparing these countries, I have not taught, let alone been in a class where so many light bulbs go off so frequently. Like, the work of the comparativist requires us to constantly be making connections. So I totally feel where you're coming from. I really like the way you're thinking, and that should be enough. But just to drive the train into the station here, yeah. let's wrap up by having you recommend to our audience uh, a resource, any resource that has helped to shape your thinking about comparative politics. So I know that populism was actually one of the content for one of the questions this uh, past year on the uh, comparative exam. And actually, I myself have been diving into uh, the populism literature. I taught a class this past semester over it. One text that I found to be really interesting, just thinking about populism as an idea and as a means of politics, is uh, by Ernesto Laclau uh, in his text uh, on populist reason. And it's an interesting look of trying to think about populism and how a public and a leader are uh, created and how it's a discursive uh, it's a discursive model of thinking about like how that how this the people is created itself so and I just find it to be an interesting read and it's theoretical but it's still very applicable to what we're seeing right now in politics all right on populist reason by Ernesto Laclau I will link to that in the show notes. Dr. Ryan Doherty, it has been a pleasure having you on the Kogopod. Thank you so much for joining me in conversation. And uh, perhaps I'll have the pleasure of running into you again next year at the AP Reading in Salt Lake City. Thanks again, buddy. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And there you have it, my friends, my conversation with Ryan Doherty. We could have talked forever. Really great guy. I enjoy the cut of his jib. Hardworking cat pretty interesting class. Hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, again, consider going over to buymeacoffee.com slash kogopod. More importantly, please stay healthy, stay well, keep learning, take care of yourself, and I'll catch you on the next episode.